Section 2 of Ingersoll on Thomas Paine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Lecture 3, Thomas Paine, Section 2. When Paine was born, the world was religious. The pulpit was the real throne, and the churches were making every effort to crush out of the brain the idea that it had the right to think. The splendid saying of Lord Bacon that the inquiry of truth, which is the love-making or wooing of it, the knowledge of truth, which is the presence of it, and the belief of truth, which is the enjoying of it, are the sovereign good of human nature, has been and ever will be rejected by religionists. Intellectual liberty, as a matter of necessity, forever destroys the idea that belief is either praise or blameworthy, and is wholly inconsistent with every creed of Christendom. Paine recognized this truth. He also saw that as long as the Bible was considered inspired, this infamous doctrine of the virtue of belief would be believed and preached. He examined the scriptures for himself and found them filled with cruelty, absurdity, and immorality. He again made up his mind to sacrifice himself for the good of his fellow man. He commenced with the assertion that any system of religion that has anything in it that shocks the mind of a child cannot be a true system. What a beautiful, what a tender sentiment! No wonder the church began to hate him. He believed in one God and no more. After this life he hoped for happiness. He believed that true religion consisted in doing justice, loving mercy, in endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy, and in offering to God the fruit of the heart. He denied the inspiration of the scriptures. This was his crime. He contended that it is a contradiction in terms to call anything a revelation that comes to a second hand, either verbally or in writing. He asserted that revelation is necessarily limited to the first communication, and that after that it is only an account of something which another person says was a revelation to him. We have only his word for it, as it was never made to us. This argument never has been, and probably never will be, answered. He denied the divine origin of Christ, and showed conclusively that the pretended prophecies of the Old Testament had no reference to him whatever. And yet he believed that Christ was a virtuous and amiable man, that the morality he taught in practice was of the most benevolent and elevated character, and that it had not been exceeded by any. Upon this point he entertained the same sentiments now held by the Unitarians, and, in fact, by all the most enlightened Christians. In his time the church believed and taught that every word in the Bible was absolutely true. Since his day it has been proven false in its cosmogony, false in its astronomy, false in its chronology, false in its history, and, so far as the Old Testament is concerned, false in almost everything. There are but a few, if any, scientific men who apprehend that the Bible is literally true. 
who on earth at this day would pretend to settle any scientific question by a text from the Bible. The old belief is confined to the ignorant and zealous. The church itself will before long be driven to occupy the position of Thomas Paine. The best minds of the orthodox world today are endeavoring to prove the existence of a personal deity. All other questions occupy a minor place. You are no longer asked to swallow the Bible whole, whale Jonah and all. You are simply required to believe in God and pay your pew rent. There is not now an enlightened minister in the world who will seriously contend that Samson's strength was in his hair, or that the necromancers of Egypt could turn water into blood and pieces of wood into serpents. These follies have passed away, and the only reason that the religious world can now have for disliking pain is that they have been forced to adopt so many of his opinions. Paine thought the barbarities of the Old Testament inconsistent with what he deemed to be the real character of God. He believed that murder, massacre, and indiscriminate slaughter had never been commanded by the deity. He regarded much of the Bible as childish, unimportant, and foolish. The scientific world entertains the same opinion. Paine attacked the Bible precisely in the same spirit in which he had attacked the pretensions of kings. He used the same weapons. All the pomp in the world could not make him cower. His reason knew no holy of holies except the abode of truth. The sciences were then in their infancy. The attention of the really learned had not been directed to an impartial examination of our pretended revelation. It was accepted by most as a matter of course. The church was all-powerful, and no one, unless thoroughly imbued with the spirit of self-sacrifice, thought for a moment of disputing the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. The infamous doctrines that salvation depended upon belief, upon a mere intellectual conviction, was then believed and preached. To doubt was to secure the damnation of your soul. This absurd and devilish doctrine shocked the common sense of Thomas Paine, and he denounced it with the fervor of honest indignation. This doctrine, although infinitely ridiculous, has been nearly universal, and has been as hurtful as senseless. For the overthrow of this infamous tenet, Paine exerted all his strength. He left few arguments to be used by those who would come after him, and to use none that have been refuted. The combined wisdom and genius of all mankind cannot possibly conceive of an argument against liberty of thought. Neither can they show why anyone should be punished, either in this world or another, for acting honestly in accordance with reason. And yet a doctrine with every possible argument against it has been, and still is, believed and defended by the entire orthodox world. Can it be possible that we have been endowed with reason simply that our souls may be caught in its toils and snares, that we may be led by its false and delusive glare out of the narrow path that leads to joy into the broad way of everlasting death? Is it possible that we have been given reason 
simply that we may, through faith, ignore its deductions and avoid its conclusions? Ought the sailor to throw away his compass and depend entirely upon the fog? If reason is not to be depended upon in matters of religion, that is to say, in respect of our duties to the deity, why should it be relied upon in matters respecting the rights of our fellows? Why should we throw away the laws given to Moses by God himself and have the audacity to make some of our own? How dare we drown the thunders of Sinai by calling the eyes and nose in a petty legislature? If reason can determine what is merciful, what is just, the duties of man to man, what more do we want either in time or eternity? Down, forever down, with any religion that requires upon its ignorant altar the sacrifice of the goddess reason, that compels her to abdicate forever that shining throne of the soul, trips from her form the imperial purple, and snatches from her hand the scepter of thought, and makes her the bondwoman of a senseless faith. If a man should tell you that he had the most beautiful painting in the world, and after taking you where it was, should insist on having your eyes shut, you would likely suspect either that he had no painting, or that it was some pitiable daub. Should he tell you that he was a most excellent performer on the violin, and yet refused to play unless your ears were stopped, you would think, to say the least of it, that he had an odd way of convincing you of his musical ability? But would his conduct be any more wonderful than that of a religionist who asks that before examining his creed you will have the kindness to throw away your reason? The first gentleman says, Keep your eyes shut. My picture will bear everything but being seen. Keep your ears stopped. My music objects to nothing but being heard. The last says, Away with your reason. My religion dreads nothing but being understood. So far as I am concerned, I most cheerfully admit that most Christians are honest, most ministers sincere. We do not attack them. We attack their creed. We accord to them the same rights that we ask for ourselves. We believe that their doctrines are hurtful. We believe that the frightful text he that believes shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned, has covered the earth with blood. It has filled the heart with arrogance, cruelty, and murder. It has caused religious wars, bound hundreds of thousands to the stake, founded inquisitions, filled dungeons, invented the instruments of torture, taught the mother to hate her child, imprisoned the mind, filled the world with ignorance, persecuted the lovers of wisdom, built the monasteries and convents, made happiness a crime, investigation a sin, and self-reliance a blasphemy. It has poisoned the springs of learning, misdirected the energies of the world, filled all countries with want, housed the people in hovels, fed them with famine. But for the efforts of a few brave infidels, it would have taken the world back to the midnight of barbarism and left the heavens without a star. The maligners of pain say that he had no right to attack this doctrine because he was unacquainted with dead languages, and for this reason 
it was a piece of pure impudence in him to investigate the scriptures. Is it necessary to understand Hebrew in order to know that cruelty is not a virtue, that murder is inconsistent with infinite goodness, and that eternal punishment can be inflicted upon man only by an eternal fiend? Is it really essential to conjugate the Greek verbs before you can make up your mind as to the probability of dead people getting out of their graves? Must one be versed in Latin before he is entitled to express his opinion on the genuineness of a pretended revelation from God? Common sense belongs exclusively to no tongue. Logic is not confined to, nor has it been buried with, the dead languages. Paine attacked the Bible as it is translated. If the translation is wrong, let its defenders correct it. The Christianity of Paine's day is not the Christianity of our time. There has been a great improvement since then. One hundred and fifty years ago, the foremost preachers of our time would have perished at the stake. A universalist would have been torn in pieces in England, Scotland, and America. Unitarians would have found themselves in the stocks, pelted by the rabble with dead cats, after which their ears would have been cut off, their tongues bored, and their foreheads branded. Less than one hundred and fifty years ago, the following law was in force in Maryland. Be it enacted by the right honorable, the Lord Proprietor, by and with the advice and consent of his lordship's governor, and the upper and lower houses of the assembly, and the authority of the same, that if any person shall hereafter within this province wittingly, maliciously, and advisedly, by writing or speaking, blaspheme or curse God, or deny our Saviour Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, or shall deny the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or the Godhead of any of the three persons, or the unity of the Godhead, or shall utter any profane words concerning the Holy Trinity, or any of the persons thereof, and shall therefore be convict by verdict, shall for the first offense be bored through the tongue, and find twenty pounds to be levied of his body. And for the second offense, the offender shall be stigmatized by burning in the forehead with the letter B, and find forty pounds. And that for the third offense, the offender shall suffer death without the benefit of clergy. The strange thing about this law is that it has never been repealed and is still in force in the District of Columbia. Laws like this were in force in most of the colonies and in all countries where the church had power. In the Old Testament, the death penalty is attached to hundreds of offenses. It has been the same in all Christian countries. Today, in civilized governments, the death penalty is attached only to murder and treason, and in some it has been entirely abolished. What a commentary upon the divine systems of the world! In the day of Thomas Paine, the church was ignorant, bloody, and relentless. In Scotland, the kirk was at the summit of its power. It was a full sister of the Spanish Inquisition. It waged war upon human nature. It was the enemy of happiness, the hater of joy, and the despiser of religious liberty. 
It taught parents to murder their children rather than to allow them to propagate error. If the mother held opinions of which the infamous Kirk disapproved, her children were taken from her arms, the babe from her very bosom, and she was not allowed to see them or to write them a word. It would not allow shipwrecked sailors to be rescued from drowning on Sunday. It sought to annihilate pleasure, to pollute the heart by filling it with religious cruelty and gloom, and to change mankind into a vast horde of pious, heartless fiends. One of the most famous Scotch divines said, The Kirk holds that religious toleration is not far from blasphemy. And this same Scotch Kirk denounced beyond measure the man who had the moral grandeur to say, The world is my country, and to do good my religion. And this same Kirk abhorred the man who said, Any system of religion that shocks the mind of a child cannot be a true system. At that time nothing so delighted the church as the beauties of endless torment and listening to the weak wailings of damned infants struggling in the slimy coils and poison folds of the worm that never dies. About the beginning of the nineteenth century a boy by the name of Thomas Aikenhead was indicted and tried at Edinburgh for having denied the inspiration of the scriptures, and for having, on several occasions, when cold, wished himself in hell that he might get warm. Notwithstanding the poor boy recanted and begged for mercy, he was found guilty and hanged. His body was thrown in a hole at the foot of the scaffold and covered with stones. Prosecutions and executions like this were common in every Christian country, and all of them were based on the belief that an intellectual conviction is a crime. No wonder the church hated and traduced the author of the Age of Reason. England was filled with the Puritan gloom and Episcopal ceremony. All religious conceptions were of the grossest nature. The ideas of crazy fanatics and extravagant poets were taken as sober facts. Milton had clothed Christianity in the soiled and faded finery of the gods, had added to the story of Christ the fables of mythology. He gave to the Protestant church the most outrageously material ideas of the deity. He turned all the angels into soldiers, made heaven a battlefield, put Christ in uniform, and described God as a militia general. His works were considered by the Protestants nearly as sacred as the Bible itself, and the imagination of the people was thoroughly polluted by the horrible imagery, the sublime absurdity of the blind Milton. Heaven and hell were realities. The judgment day was expected. Books of account would be opened. Every man would hear the charges against him read. God was supposed to sit on a golden throne, surrounded by the tallest angels, with harps in their hands and crowns on their heads. The goats would be thrust into eternal fire on the left, while the orthodox sheep on the right were to gamble on sunny slopes forever and forever. The nation was profoundly ignorant, and consequently extremely religious, so far as belief was concerned. In Europe, 
Liberty was lying chained in the Inquisition, her white bosom stained with blood. In the New World, the Puritans had been hanging and burning in the name of God and selling white Quaker children into slavery in the name of Christ, who said, Suffer little children to come unto me. Under such conditions, progress was impossible. Someone had to lead the way. The church is and always has been incapable of forward movement. Religion always looks back. The church has already reduced Spain to a guitar, Italy to a hand organ, and Ireland to exile. Someone not connected with the church had to attack the monster that was eating out the heart of the world. Someone had to sacrifice himself for the good of all. The people were in the most abject slavery. Their manhood had been taken from them by pomp, by pageantry and power. Progress is born of doubt and inquiry. The church never doubts, never inquires. To doubt is heresy. To inquire is to admit that you do not know. The church does neither. More than a century ago, Catholicism, wrapped in robes red, with the innocent blood of millions, holding in her frantic clutch crowns and scepters, honors and gold, the keys of heaven and hell, trampling beneath her feet the liberties of nations, in the proud moment of almost universal dominions, felt within her heartless breast the deadly dagger of Voltaire. From that blow the church never can recover. Livid with hatred, she launched her eternal anathema at the great destroyer, and ignorant Protestants have echoed the curse of Rome. In our country, the church was all-powerful, and although divided into many sects, would instantly unite to repel a common foe. Pain struck the first grand blow. The age of reason did more to undermine the power of the Protestant church than all other books then known. It furnished an immense amount of food for thought, it was written for the average mind, and is a straightforward, honest investigation of the Bible and of the Christian system. Paine did not falter from the first page to the last. He gives you his candid thought, and candid thoughts are always valuable. The age of reason has liberalized us all. It put arguments in the mouths of the people. It put the church on the defensive. It enabled somebody in every village to corner the parson. It made the world wiser and the church better. It took power from the pulpit and divided it among the pews. Just in proportion that the human race has advanced, the church has lost power. There is no exception to this rule. No nation ever materially advanced that held strictly to the religion of its founders. No nation ever gave itself wholly to the control of the church without losing its power, its honor, and existence. Every church pretends to have found the exact truth. This is the end of progress. Why pursue that which you have? Why investigate when you know? Every creed is a rock in running water. Humanity sweeps by it. Every creed cries to the universe, Halt! A creed is the ignorant past bullying the enlightened present. 
the ignorant are not satisfied with what can be demonstrated science is too slow for them and so they invent creeds they demand completeness a sublime segment a grand fragment are of no value to them they demand the complete circle the entire structure in music they want a melody with a recurring accent at measured periods in religion they insist upon immediate answers to the questions of creation and destiny the alpha and omega of all things must be the alphabet of their superstition a religion that cannot answer every question and guess every conundrum is in their estimation worse than worthless they desire a kind of theological dictionary a religious ready reckoner together with guide-boards at all crossings and turns they mistake impudence for authority solemnity for wisdom and bathos for inspiration the beginning and the end are what they demand the grand flight of the eagle is nothing to them they want the nest in which he was hatched and especially the dry limb upon which he roosts anything that can be learned is hardly worth knowing the present is considered of no value in itself happiness must not be expected this side of the clouds and can only be obtained by self-denial and faith not self-denial for the good of others but for the salvation of your own sweet self pain deny the authority of bibles and creeds this was his crime and for this the world shut the door in his face and emptied its slops upon him from the windows end of section two